So what are we what are we supposed to talk about, Nigel? <laughs> we are going to talk about today. This is part two of our conversation. Uh, and I want to call this one after the dopamine. <laughs> right. Once you've done a lot of hunting, then what do you do? I know the two are intermingled, but this is what I'd like to get at because some years ago you sent me uh, a lovely package that contained a selection of the printed items that you have produced as a result of, of your collection. So I, I want to go through this and talk about a selected number of items from the perspective of a little fish collector who gets excited by the same things that you do and needs a bit of advice. So uh, allow me, if I could, to read out another very old biography. And if you could, again, update it, because we talked a couple of years ago. Okay, I'm, I'm happy to do that, despite my embarrassment. Go on. <laughs> so, uh, Mark Samuels Lasner, a book collector specializing in the late Victorian period, has contributed to Notes and Queries, the book collector, the Journal of Pre-Raphaelite Studies, and Browning Institute Studies. You, at that point, were working on a, a bibliography of Max Beerbaum, which became way too complicated. So I'll turn it over to you again, Mark. Oh, the poor bibliography announced to the world in 1987. And one of those unfinished books, like Schubert's Unfinished Symphony, though that, that, that was written down and performed. Uh, the Beerbaum bibliography, in which I spent good decade and a half working on it, exists in the form of about 1,500 pages of descriptions and notes and information in a computer program I no longer can use. And I had to give it up because my eyesight got worse and I really couldn't trust myself to transcribe title pages or quotations or read letters accurately. There have been a couple of people who have been interested in collaborating or what I had hoped finishing it, but it really became too complicated. Max Beerbaum once said that his, uh, that his gifts were small, that he had used them wisely. Well, that's not entirely true. He created almost 1,500, 1,800 caricatures of the celebrities of his time, wrote 560-odd drama articles for the Saturday Review between 19, 1898 and 1910, whole bunch of essays, a novel, Zulika Dobson, short stories, and of course, lots of letters, contributions to books and such. And it became really kind of like Kasabin's key to all mythologies. I almost got to the point where I didn't understand what I was doing. And you have to, you have to think that virtually every word of this bibliography, or most of it, was going to be the title of something, the title of a caricature or the identification of a caricature, which means someone's name, or at the title of an essay, the title of a magazine. Yes, with page numbers perhaps thrown in and dates, 
but it really became too big to finish. And I basically gave up. I have begun to use my work, somewhat surprised at how good it is actually, for a beer bomb exhibition, which will take place in the fall of next year at the New York Public Library that my partner and colleague Margaret Stetz and I are doing. And that will be the first major beer bomb exhibition in the United States since the 1980s. And actually the first really to uh, show not only caricatures, but books and manuscripts and even some personalia. I've had recourse to my old notes to find out information. And I was mightily impressed at what I could do decades ago. I love how that brings it right around up to the current date. That's great. Okay, so in fact, it's, it's interesting about bibliographies because they're so closely connected with possibly the most important thing you can do to start with with your collection, and that is catalog it. Well, absolutely. There's no point in having a collection if you don't have some record of it. I often think that the making of the descriptions of what's in a collection is just about as much fun as acquiring material. And if you do it right, you learn a great deal. What is right, Mark? Well, right is not simply a list of author and title, publisher and date. It's explaining why this book is in your collection, why it's important to you, why it may be important in its own right. That gets into the idea of association copies, inscriptions, annotations, previous ownership, illustrations, bindings, and of course, let's not forget the contents of the book. Why do you have this book? The justification for selection, and then also some take on why you think it's valuable. Right. And, and not only financially valuable, but, but meaningful. And there are a number of people who have done catalogs or exhibitions of their collections or favorite books. I think it's a brilliant idea. I mean, Bill Reese did it months before he died. Um, he did a, a series of catalogs in which he wrote about his favorite books. Some of them were things that in his own library, others were books he had read or enjoyed or possibly sold. And it was fascinating, the stories behind them, uh, why they were in those catalogs. Yeah, and I think that is one of the most fascinating aspects. Uh, why do you pull the trigger? And, and also, I mean, in terms of booksellers, they make a livelihood out of assigning value to what they have and trying to convince other people to think the way they do. And collectors, of course, are trying to find the books that the booksellers don't fully understand. That, that's what collectors are always trying to do. We're trying to, we're trying to find the, <laughs> the book which when we walk out of the shop or get that email from an internet search mechanism, that you thank you for your order and you know something is coming and you you don't want to say why this book is so good. Nobody understood it except you. That just also sort of speaks to finding new areas where you know that whatever you're collecting, it has importance, but no one, as you say, no one seems to have looked at it before. 
Or, you know, there are things that if you collect a particular, things that you will learn if you collect a particular area that really others, you know, some dealers might know, some people in auction houses, uh, scholars, biographers, critics may know, but you develop expertise. And after a while, you can also trust your own judgment. You could almost, I won't say smell it, but you can tell that there's something there that's out of the ordinary. If you're a collector, you get this, I don't know what to call it, this a vibration, a, a sense of a frisson that you're looking at something that's really interesting. Uh, that's not a, that's not good enough, Mark. About this sense. I mean, how to describe it? Yeah, I want to know more about that. I don't know. Maybe collectors can wear some kind of monitor connected to their phones, and when this happens, it will send signals to scientists, and they'll be able to know what your brain waves are like. I don't. I don't know. But you know, I'm not alone in telling a story like. No. Every collector has a similar tale, that they have seen something, been somewhere, found an item that they knew. I mean, there are, there are stories of collectors who walked into bookshops, not even really paying attention to what's on the shelves, pulled a book down and discovered it's the book they wanted for 20 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. We're we're still in dopamine territory here, Mark. (laughs) (laughs) But then you're saying that cataloging that box is almost as much fun as dopamine. Is that what Yes, absolutely. There's there's a wonderful rhythm to cataloging the way you put the information is the amount of research you might do to find out. You know, there's a book plate. Who was that person? You know, there's some people who don't care. I mean, I've, I've known people who never made a list of what they owned and didn't want to do so. But I think no serious collectors, in a sense, they're, they're partly librarians. They want to catalog books. Then some of us go further than that. We want to, you know, brag, boast, tell the world what we've gathered and why it's interesting. So we do exhibitions or catalogs or, you know, some kind of publication about what the things, what the books are. You know, I think there's there's obviously a very long history of collectors self-publishing. This whole idea then of sort of systematizing ideas. It's like a taxonomy. You're pulling together a grouping of books or magazines or ephemera, whatever it is then you're categorizing them, right? Yes. Like a scientist. Like a scientist, yes. I mean, you, you're putting them in, some, in an order. And then we have talked a bit about the research. Uh, there's research during the hunt, and that, there's always going to be the hunt. And then after the hunt, in a sense, like you've, you've got your quarry, you've got a bunch of it, and that's a thrill. But now you've got a, you know, you've got a critical mass of stuff that you really do need to think about. Yes. 
<laughs> there are also the occasions in which you acquired something and discover that, um, well, it's not what it's supposed to be or what you thought it was. That's a, a problem uh, that occasionally occurred. You know, something that you find is a forgery or a misattribution. That happens from time to time. Now, as far as collections go, what you have is evidence. You have, say, original writings. You have that so that you can study it and come up with authoritative findings. Yes. I mean, I I think, you know, if you're thinking about evidence of the history of literature, publishing, illustration, whatever subject, yes, the, the primary sources are crucial to research. And I think also providing the material objects of cultural heritage are truly important. And they're really important right now because the world has gone digital and people forget that books are not simply in a sense, tiny dots on the screen. They are physical objects. They don't all look the same in Happy Trust or Google Books. They are different, produced over centuries for their different sizes, their different typography, their all kinds of things that are that give them, in a sense, what the collector Robert Taylor called the flavor of the period. They're the evidence of their making. And I think that's really important for people to not just see pictures of them on the internet, but to see those artifacts in real life and even be able to handle them, to be able to become familiar with them. And of course, there's a thrill many feel when they pick up uh, an autograph, an original autograph letter written by a writer they admire. Yeah, they see, you know, uh, a painting or they, you know, see a book that's a favorite, you know, of theirs. I remember having a student in a class once who was writing about Christina Rossetti and on the table were letters and manuscripts. And we had at least the good sense to put them in mylar sleeves because when she picked up the Christina Rossetti manuscript, she lost it. She just started weeping. She said, I can't believe I'm holding something that Christina Rossetti wrote Mm -hmm. 150 years before. Can you give me an example of a finding that you've come up with? Something that I have discovered that might mean something to someone else? (laughs) Yes. Or correcting the record, maybe. Right. The, The best example is, in fact, the reason for the article in one of the journals you mentioned, Browning Institute Studies. Uh, I I think I could have made a good career as an academic because I took what was really a one-page manuscript and spun it into, oh, about 20 pages of of, of footnotes and asides. In the late 1970s, I bought a group of books and manuscripts by the Anglo-Irish poet William Allingham. And one of the manuscripts was his pocket commonplace book. And the book begins with a transcript of Robert Browning's first book, 
Pauline, published in 1833 anonymously. And this is the notebook dates from the 1850s. This person sat down and wrote out the entire text of Browning's book. Trans the transcript is preceded by something else, which is a copy of a letter which is signed with initials R.B. from 1847. It's to someone whose last name begins with R. Investigation of the commonplace book led to the conclusion that what Allingham's book contains is largely the contents of Dante Gabriel Rossetti's own notebook, now lost. And the letter that is transcribed is the first letter from Robert Browning to Dante Gabriel Rossetti. The story is that Rossetti had discovered Pauline, a fragment of a confession, anonymously published in 1833 in the British Museum Library. And astute as he was, he guessed that, or more than guessed, that the writer was the relatively unknown Robert Browning. He wrote Browning a letter saying, dear sir, are you the author of this book called Pauline? That letter has been known for probably most of a century and it's in the Huntington Library. Well, in Allium's commonplace book is the copy of Robert Browning's letter to Dante Gabriel Rossetti, which was heretofore unknown. I thought it was a pretty good discovery. So wait a second, uh, Allington obviously saw this letter and copied it out by hand? Exactly, that's what Al it was stuck in, my guess is it was stuck in Rossetti's notebook and Allingham copied, when he copied Rossetti's copy of Pauline, he copied the letter as well. And where was this letter at the British Library? Well, the original letter doesn't exist. The letter from Robert Browning to Rossetti, only Allingham's transcript exists. Right, so, but he's- so we, we, we now know what Browning wrote back to the young, you know, Rossetti who had discovered his, his book. Thanks to- so William Allingham's careful transcription. Right, um, right. And the book also includes a number of poems, anonymous poems from magazines which are ascribed to Robert and Elizabeth Barrett Browning. Um, and then next to these copies, these transcriptions, there'll be the writing that says, note of DGR, meaning Rossetti believed these anonymous works were by the Brownings as well. So that, that, was, my, that was my first and best discovery. You know, I had owned this Allingham commonplace book for a good many years before I realized what was in it. Well, that just tells you that you really should study your collection, study it hard. That's right. Okay, and then once you've got this find, these findings from your collection, then you write something about it, and then you look possibly, if you're interested, to publish it somewhere. That's how you perceive. Oh, that, that, that's something, you know, I've done on occasion and, and many, many collectors have done. I mean, there, there are wonderful books by collectors, which include their discoveries, unpublished letters, 
There are others that are, let's call them more discursive about their collecting career. Um, that may include new, new information that they've derived from material that they own. I see. Okay. So we talked about research. Obviously, you read everything that you've got closely. Oh, I, don't, I might read an autograph letter no, I do, or an inscription in a book, but I do not read. You don't read book. everything? Uh, oh, no, no. If you're a serious book collector, as in a famous statement, and I'll misquote it, uh, of A.N.L. Mundy, if you do book collecting right, you don't have time for reading. So <laughs> that may, and, and that may be really true now with the Internet. But, you, know, you could spend hours on the Internet looking, searching for books. What you're doing is you're providing raw material for people who will do the reading. That's, that's the idea, right. Or maybe never, they, no one will actually read the books. There are books, books on the shelves in the collection that I doubt will ever be, never mind, read. They won't be ever looked at, period. They're of interest to absolutely no one. Not even to me sometimes when I look at them and think, why is this book here? But anyway, to go back to your point about research, the obvious place to go is Google. Try various words that might turn up an archive or a listing or a biography or an obituary or something uh, that will lead you to, as you said, is one thing leads to another, leads you to something else. I mean, one, one of the things that I think is, is true is you have to have been a pretty obscure person in the English-speaking world to not have some presence on the internet somewhere. If you were alive in the last 100 to 150 years, I mean, between census records, the kind of things that are in um, the genealogy databases, the biographical dictionaries, city directories, somewhere, almost everybody shows up. And what now, good does that do you? Well, once you figured out that the John Smith you want or the Jane Smith you want is the particular one, because that's always a problem when people have the same or similar names, then you try to put the, the pieces together. You know, where does somebody show up and you know, how do you, what can you find out about them? Uh, I have several books, which are presentation copies or association copies that have names in them that we've never been able to identify with certainty. We can read the names or sometimes make a, a guess of what the writing says, but they have never turned up. And I have the, a little mental list of those names that I sort of keep in my head all the time, hoping that someday I'm going to be looking at some other book or some source on the internet and those na that name will pop out. But you really have to be obscure. You know, it's a terrible thing to say this because it's what students do all the time. The first thing you do is you go to Google and see what happens. Yes. Well, I referenced the fact that, you know, you're pulling the raw material together. You do read a lot of the stuff. Uh, I, I know you do. I did. I did when my eyesight was better, but I really, yes. I really don't. I don't now. Uh, this is a, an interesting aspect of what you're, you're, you know, you're collecting 
history is that your partner is a scholar. She's uh, a serious scholar and professor. She was responsible for this beautiful catalog called Facing the Late Victorians, Portraits of Writers and Artists from the Mark Samuels Lasner Collection. High-end example of something that you've done with your collection. So maybe you could just talk about the relationship and... How I describe this is I, I feel I am the hunter-gatherer and <laughs> Professor Stetz is the brilliant critic and interpreter and writer. She's the cook. Yes. I get the ingredients and she's the cook. And she is a <laughs> gourmet cook. She, she has made the art of, in a sense, label writing for exhibitions and in catalogs into an art form. And I'm not simply saying that because of who, you know, my relationship with her. If you read what she writes, you will learn and you will enjoy. Well, so she does the reading and uh, produces and adds value to what you've gone out and hunted down. Correct. And she makes the connections between the people, the object, the stories. Yes. This is exactly what you wanted when you started out? Yes, and also because everyone who collects, you enjoy acquiring material, finding things. And you also, you know, many of us enjoy the people we encounter while we are doing what we do. But yes, I wanted always that the materials that I collected would be available to those who would want to see them and use them. It's a two-way street. A lot, of, a lot of people say, well, you know, don't collectors want to hide things you know, so no one sees them. And my, my view is no, because I learned from the researchers and the scholars and curators and booksellers, bibliographers about the things in the collection. And people quite often come and they're looking at a book or a letter or a manuscript and they will tell me something I didn't know about. Or they'll ask yeah. a question. They'll speculate or they'll make a connection that I would have never thought of. I think that's really important um, that collections become available. I'm not keen on collectors who are sort of hiding away the material, uh, thinking that, well, it's if I put it away for 20 years, it's going to be worth all this money. And, you know, people will pay great deal to have what has basically not been available to them. That's, that's not my, my feeling at all. Yeah, so how did you go about doing that? You were acquiring and then you entered into a relationship with the university. Is that how it worked? That, that's part of it. But even before that, I had you know, been involved in a number of organizations uh, such as the William Morris Society, Bibliograph Society of America, the American Printing History Association, where I encountered people who could make use of the, of the collection. I, I have been known to write to scholars, researchers, biographers, if I hear, oh, you're writing a biography of so-and-so. Did yeah. you know about the letters in the collection? Though I always a little bit miffed 
when there's a biography of some late Victorian figure that comes out. And in the acknowledgments, there are all these institutions listed, but not the University of Delaware Library. And I think, I think I've tried very hard to make the collection known. And my colleagues at the library are doing the same for our collections. And yet that biographer didn't know that, you know, the six or seven autograph letters of that writer were here, you know, for them to, to look at. You know, one of the joys of the fact that now virtually 100% of the collection has been cataloged into the library's Delcat system is that we get inquiries, you know, virtually every week from someone who is interested in a writer or an artist or a subject, you know, do you have anything on the, you know, by or about this figure? So really it, uh, that is a big motivation for, for all of the communication that you do around your collection. Yes, absolutely. And so, you know, if we're involved in a number of scholarly projects, providing images to people. Uh, we are also, you know, very welcoming to, to researchers. I mean, anyone who has a serious interest, we're happy to see them. Mark, you have a venue, you have a beautiful uh, room that people can go to and browse your collection. What about the, the little guy that or woman? Well, I think if someone, if they vet the potential you know, researcher, scholar, enthusiast, and they feel comfortable with them, you know, develop, maybe develop a friendship and invite them to visit if you, if you are thinking that that's the, this is the kind of thing you want to do. I have certainly, as a researcher, proto-scholar, I've visited all kinds of people in all kinds of places, some of which were not very pleasant, but they let me in. That was nice. In some cases, they let me in on a very stormy, rainy day, allowed me to see the painting, which I told them they had better be sent to a conservator before it disintegrated uh, and then showed me the door. But at least I saw a Dante Gabriel Rossetti work that hadn't seen, I caught the light of day, except it was a very dim room for half a century. Now the painting has been restored. It is in the Museum of Fine Arts, Boston. And I like to think that if I hadn't talked my way in to seeing it, and explain to them what it was and how valuable and important it was that it could have just crumbled on top of the radiator that was heating it up to the point where the paint was flaking off the canvas or board. So I think collectors have some responsibility in making their collections available. I mean, you, could, you can conceivably develop an association with a local institution and say to a researcher, I'll bring my book or manuscript to special collections. They'll look after you and it, and you can go there and see it. And of course the special collections librarians, curators would be delighted because they're going to see you as not just as a collector, but as a potential donor. Yeah. What about the idea of, you know, you photograph your collection, your, the items in your collection, 
doing up a, a slideshow and, and maybe taking that on, trying, trying to give little presentations. Certainly, I've certainly given presentations with lots of pictures. I have to say, if you've heard one of my talks, you've probably heard them all. But yes, um, have pictures, you know, put pictures on the internet. Yes. Uh, and and if, you're, if you're really lucky, you can put the pictures of things from your collection on the internet and explain that you or an institution owns them and they're just not, not just floating out there uh, in space. I've been amused to discover that a number of images of items in my collection now turn up in, you know, there's no connection. They don't know where the original is. And, but I can buy a mug which reproduces a Beardsley drawing in, in my collection from Zaz or a t-shirt, almost anything from Zaz. I think I can get an iPhone case, you know? I mean, I maybe I should buy all of these things and sort of put together a whole outfit. So they're, they're you know, yes, it's great to have images out there. You know, people learn about it, it draws them in, but getting credit for those images, oh, that's not easy. I mean, of course, many of these things were reproduced in books and magazines and you know, they're out there, the dealers have reproduced them and people just, you know, I mean, they just take the images and do what they like with them. Yeah. Well, again, you do want to share. Ideally, you'd like them to come and use your collection, but right. uh, okay. just, just winding down, uh, looking at uh, what you've done, you've, we talked about some bibliographies and checklists. You've produced uh, these delightful catalogs uh, in, in a couple of cases to celebrate centenaries. And these catalogs, again, you go through a process of selecting what goes into the, cat in, into the exhibition. Right. So again, there's more judgment involved. Yeah, so the judgment can be very difficult to choose what goes into you know, a publication or an exhibition. I used to dream of producing five or six volume catalog of the collection with lots of illustrations and full collations of the books and such. I got sort of hooked on a sample description that was made in, oh, I don't know, the 1920s or 1930s for the catalog of the Chapin Collection at Williams College. And this was uh, William H. Bond, who became the librarian of Hook Library at Harvard. And he was hired to catalog the Chapin collection and did a number of descriptions, which were typeset. You know, there's a sample of one of these proofs in, it's actually William Jackson. It's not William Bond. He was Jackson's successor in yeah. records of a bibliographer. And I looked at the detail of this description. And I remember sitting down, playing with the typography, of doing a similar description of a Kelmstock Press book. It took an entire afternoon. And I realized this was not going to be a project I would ever you know, complete. Nice. <laughs> uh, but I used to dream, I used to dream of the, the great multi-volume, you know, catalog, sort of like the, you know, Thomas J. Wise or some something like that. You know, providing interesting, diverting information and showing off at the same time. Well, and it doesn't all have to be magnificent and, and expensive. You've, you've done some lovely little pieces. Uh, it, it sort of ranges from that catalog that you got Jerry K. 
Kelly to design, incidentally, to just a sort of an eight and a half, eleven bond paper. Yeah, I mean, the the one one of the things that I discovered some years ago was, um, what do they call bifold greeting cards? And these are available, um, you know, they're from stationery stores, you know, or Staples or Office Depot. Standard size, eight and a half by 11 sheets. They're stiff, they're not. And with a little bit of really my kind of computer ability, which is not great, you can make folding four page leaflets. And they have turned out to be one of the great discoveries of my entire life. So we have a class visit or a group come to the library. They get something to take home with them. There is something from the collection and a list of what they saw. And I now do these on a regular basis. And they're kind of fun. You know, if you have a class visit, you're going to make a selection anyway. Well, why not, you know, instead of the regular just list, give them this little folded thing that looks a little bit better. So, yes, things have gone from elaborately designed books all the way down to those. But I have to say those little in-house things give me a lot of pleasure to do. Well, I love this one that you did. It's on a, a nice, thick, luxurious paper. It's letterpress. That's the work of my wonderful friends, Ray Nichols and Jill Cipher of the Newark, Delaware letterpress called Lead Graffiti. Um, and they've done a lot of things connected to the collection. So if people want to collect <laughs> what you've done with your collection, then what? They should, they should head over there and see if there's... Uh, they well, they, they, yeah, we, we've, still, we've still got some, <laughs> some piles of, of leaflets and keepsakes and booklets and things, and I'd be happy to supply anyone with whatever we've got. Um, there's a long tradition of printing ephemera by collectors to give to their friends and to provide for, you know, for visitors. I actually collect such things myself. Yeah, and it gives you ideas too, I guess, too. Oh, absolutely. I steal from them all the time. And there are some wonderful ones that were printed for visits of Roller Club members to various places. And very few of such little, uh, these kind of keepsakes, very few are easily found in libraries. Sometimes there's a box that says, you know, ephemera of a collector or an institution, but they're not usually listed individually. But some are very beautifully, very beautifully produced. The Grolier Club does a, a really, I mean, they put on lots of exhibitions by members. And the members, again, go through this process of selecting what to appear in an exhibition and then producing uh, catalogs. And there are quite a few of those around. There are a great many, and they vary from little folded leaflets to extraordinary illustrated books that become, many of them, the standard references on their subjects. Uh, it's very interesting to think that if you are interested in your name living on in posterity, <laughs> do a bibliography or a catalog and 
forever, people will say, not in Samuel's last year. And you'll, you'll live on, ironically, you'll probably live on a lot longer than most you know, scholars and literary critics who are forgotten. I mean, we are still referring to Stuart Mason's bibliography of Oscar Wilde, the only real one ever done, which was produced in 1914. And any bookseller who's cataloging a first edition by Oscar Wilde will still give the Mason number. Quite a feat, actually. Um, speaking of earlier exhibitions, I will take the opportunity to promote um, one coming up in September. Aubrey Beardsley, 150 Years Young, curated by Margaret T. Stetz and Mark Samuels Lassner from the Mark Samuels Lassner collection at the University of Delaware. And are you going to produce something to go along with that? that there'll, uh, be, there'll be a little something, but not a catalog, no. Okay. Well, isn't that, again, just the, the, the thing is collectors are often concerned about what's going to happen with their, their collection, their books, their whatever it is they're collecting. If they put together uh, a catalog and they happen to have to throw the materials that they've collected back into the ocean, at least there's a record of what, what they've spent their time doing and they can write, write up their thoughts in there as well. So it wouldn't just be a list. Absolutely. And, you know, there are many collections that have been dispersed, but we know, you know, what was in them because of a catalog, which can be the collector's own catalog, or an auction catalog, bookseller's catalog, and some are more personal than others. I mean, there, there are collectors who have really been able to have the means or the opportunity to describe the books, manuscripts, artworks, the way they want them described. Well, Mark, uh, I know you, you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation that you were all Zoomed out. I really appreciate you uh, <laughs> keeping, the Zoom, uh, keeping the Zoom going with me. Uh, so it's always a delight, Nigel. You ask very good questions, and I hope that some of my answers make sense. They do, and uh, and I'm again, I'm so happy to have have the some of the materials that you've produced. Uh, it's just lovely to have them and to to own them. So thanks, thank you again, and thank you for all that you do for book collecting. It makes me happy. Thank you, Nigel. <laughs>